I have to say that I did not expect in the last week the most surprising stuff in terms of entertainment news to be South Park getting $900 million in a deal <laughs> for more seasons, a video game, and uh, 14 original films for Paramount+. Plus. 14. Holy shit. I know. It's insane. Well, it's, it's just insane. And I'm sure you, like some of them will be like hour-long specials or something. No, I think but that'll like, be mainly what they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Because it's but like... Also with that, I assume maybe we'll get... You know, another feature film, like another, I don't know. I have no idea. Because that's the thing, too, is like, when I saw the 14 movie deal, I was like, oh, it's a 14 movie deal with like maybe South Park Studios. So like Trey and Matt can do other things if they want to. (laughs) No, it's it's exclusively South Park Park until 2027. And I think it also like, I think there's other stuff that wasn't said about in terms of how much money was used to like, like extend their deal with HBO Max and whatnot. It actually goes over a billion dollars. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. I think As, it was maybe the biggest or one of the biggest talent deals in history. It has to be. Nine hundred million for two guys and a single show. Not nine hundred million, yeah, for for a show that is not even thirty years old. Yeah. And because that's the thing, too, is, I mean, South Park hasn't been the underdog show for a long time. Right. right. And that's not a not, not a dig on the show. I still think the show is great. And I think especially with the last two specials, if that's what the movies are supposed to be, then I'm all fucking for it. I kind of enjoy them making basically a mini season out of like an 80 to 90 minute type yeah. thing instead of it being like. Well, we got to have 10 episodes. Like, it's a much tighter experience, those two specials. Yeah, and you're not kind of being dragged along <clears throat> for the same current events yeah. for a long time. Yeah. And it's, it was, and it's really well done, and they're still killing it. It's just insane. Yeah, it's kind of insane, insane that it hasn't yet really gone the way of, like, The Simpsons and Family Guy, where it's just kind of no. gotten redundant. And, I mean, you could argue that it, you know, does in some ways, but, like, they're still turning out stuff that you know is is Mm -hmm. clever and funny and resonates with people and the public hasn't like turned against it yet (laughs) no i I think the only thing that people have criticized in the in the recent future in the recent past has been the switch over to try to be more uh continuity friendly to a degree right and that ultimately leads to certain situations where the biggest like backlash or not even backlash but like the cause and effect of doing continuity is the fact that Trump won 2016, and they didn't expect that, and right. they had to change it last minute, and then the latter half of the season feels vastly different than the first <laughs> half because they didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, and it's interesting. After that, I think the show has has definitely like, oh my god! Like, I think the most recent season with like the Mexican Joker episode mm-hmm. is fucking hilarious, and it's just really still extremely tight. And funny and really good satire for a show that you would think would have died, like with Drawn Together and right. like other Comedy Central shows that had cult vibes and had fan bases. Well, were nowhere near like South Park. Yeah, and it's even crazier too that the Warner Brothers AMC deal, I'm assuming, isn't even as much money. I think as the yeah. I think I don't know if it's even pushing a billion. It might have. Yeah. But um, in case no one, who, anyone who's listening doesn't know, at at the point you're listening to this, it might be old news, but <laughs> Warner Brothers and AMC made a deal where next year, starting 2022, Warner Brothers films are going to be 
in theaters for 45 days exclusively and then go on to streaming. Right. So they're already pretty much announcing that they're not going to do same day in theaters after this year, which makes sense because yeah. basically they've, whether they meant to or not, I think they've burnt enough bridges and kind of, you know, <laughs> bruised enough egos to a degree. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. I genuinely mean like they just made such a rash, bold decision. Yeah, that obviously, right. people were not going to enjoy in the studio, in the, in the industry that of course they're going to have to find a way to kind of like make some amends. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But also, yeah, they're also, I'm sure trying to keep in mind how much consumers have loved the, the 2021 deal of the same day, you know, streaming release. So I'm sure that's why they're trying to, you know, keep it to 45 days and then kind of promise that it immediately goes to streaming after that. And I think they have to be the last studio to do something like this because yeah, Disney has done their premier access thing where it's like it's premier access in theaters, but three months after its initial release, it is just on Disney Plus, a part of the service. I think Paramount Plus has been doing the same thing, too, with their films where it's like I think A Quiet Place Part 2 became a part of Paramount Plus three months after it came out. Right. Actually, even Wait, before that. Wait, are we that. even at three months? I don't even think we're yeah. at three months. I think it was earlier than that, but it might have been an exclusive thing with that film. Yeah. And, you know, Universal just did their 29-day deal last year right. with theaters. And it's now just seems like, I guess, Warner Brothers was, I mean, the first to do the same day in theaters, but now is the last to be like, okay, we really need to push theaters again. Mm-hmm. And here we are. And I think it it makes sense, but at the same time, it's like, is this is this going to hurt Warner Brothers when it comes to future films because they're gonna they've hurt so many people in the bro- <laughs> or, or so many like studios in the process of like you fucking did this without asking us yeah and we renegotiated and it was fine but like how are we gonna trust you again that you're not gonna do this and right. so it's gonna be interesting to see where that goes but I mean all that is not important to the most important news that we have today and that is. Idris Elba has been cast as <laughs> Knuckles the Echidna in Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Yeah, I'm just eagerly awaiting the, like, hey, do you know the way? <laughs> like, that's my bad Idris Elba impression, but no, him no doing the, the Uganda Knuckles meme. It has to happen. No one could see this, but as I said that, Andy did not break eye contact through his entire <laughs> Uganda Knuckles impression. No, so that was, was my Idris Elba yeah, Uganda, Uganda Idris Knuckles Elba Uganda Knuckles impression. And it is astounding that after you know i think getting a decent amount of praise for the suicide squad i know we're gonna we'll talk about it but like yeah. it seems like john cena is getting the most love yeah probably it. just because he was kind of the i don't know that he should have been unexpected but kind of the unexpected gem of it yeah well it's i honestly it makes sense too that yeah. it would be him because he is a bit of he's one of the worst parts in f9 which yeah, is like one sure. of the genuine as someone who enjoyed the shit out of f9 that's a genuine thing where it's like, why the fuck do you have John Cena? Yeah, he's stiff as and, nails. And you don't use him like the Suicide Squad right. does. But yeah, I think it's astounding that we we are getting a Sonic the Hedgehog two yeah. after it came out in last year in February. Yeah, it was and like made enough money. One of the last quote unquote hits before COVID. And I I would love it. I would love it so much if. And it, this is definitely because of what we're talking about today as well as the Suicide Squad. But if they fucking had, like, a James Gunn approach to, like, the Sonic series where they, like, fucking <laughs> dive deep into, like, the Archie comics and bring right. in some weird-ass characters that, like, yeah. no one knows. No, I mean, my... I would lose my mind. Yeah. I mean, my biggest takeaway from the first one was that I wish they would do an entire movie set on, like, 
Sonic's home world because yeah. like that opening sequence where he's in the kind of video, Green Hill Zone. Yeah, yeah, the Green Hill Zone. That's the coolest, most you know, dynamic part of the movie for me. Um, There's also so like f- I would love for them to do stuff like that. You know, go mm-hmm. to different worlds and stuff. We should also, I mean, they should also clarify what the fuck the owl was in the first film. There's the like owl. that realistic looking owl at the beginning of the film that's oh, like Sonic's that, like his mom figure, mom. basically. Yeah. That is an entirely original thing in that film. <laughs> and it's like, why? Yeah, is that is it because he didn't want to do like uncle or grandpa sonic that just looks like sonic but <laughs> older sonic with wrinkles i mean that's basically what they did in the cartoons yeah so it's like it just is astounding to see like because that film to me i think the best way i would describe it is i think it'll be for younger gen z the same way space jam was to young millennials sure. yeah, yeah yeah where it's like i think a lot of kids especially kids who kind of play sonic or like grow up with video game characters will probably love that film and then grow up and go wow this is really nothing but yeah, i kind of get why or, or it never as a kid. admit that or yeah or, or just <laughs> like a like lot like of space, space jam, jam fans yeah. yeah they'll never admit that it wasn't that good yeah but um, i'm i'm genuinely excited yeah, to see I'm the first time idris elba because they have to do a ugandan knuckles joke Surely. Ab- I mean, after, they did the this, this, yeah. uh, Sanic the Hedgehog yeah. reference in uh, the first one. After, after Sanic in the first one and fucking Big Chungus in Space Jam <laughs> A New Legacy, it feels like We're even the, though the we prime make... prime era of yeah. meme references. Yeah. We make fun of studios being like, how do you do fellow kids? But it yeah. feels like they know at least enough that they yeah. can sneak that in, right, slide right. it in. And that would be hilarious if they tried that. Um but yeah, let's just talk about it since we're talking about James Gunn today, and we'll get to the intro soon enough. We do want to just have a quick discussion and just kind of talk about our thoughts on the Suicide Squad. Yeah, which is really kind of the main reason we, or not maybe not the reason we're doing this trilogy, but the reason we're doing this trilogy now. now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just came out last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, we can go ahead and scratch the first suicide squad off the tomes of history because it's insane (laughs) i i will agree with youtubers or youtube channel red letter media where it's like it's insane to watch any clips and if i'll rewatch the 2016 suicide squad and be like this film obviously had so much interference i can't even tell what is fully yeah. An air decision, a right, studio right. decision, a it's, editing decision. It's hard to blame yeah. anybody in particular uh-huh. because it's all just so mm-hmm. all over the place. And after rewatching Early Gun and thinking about the Suicide Squad, it is unapologetically him to the point where I couldn't I, I don't think I could ever tell where studio interference would be in yeah. that film. Well like, the, inter- just, the like, interesting thing about Gun is I feel like as he's grown as a filmmaker and kind of uh, you know, by and large, moved away from the kind of shock schlock that he was that he came up on. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of become, and I don't think this is you know him pandering or anything. I think no. this is just the direction he's gone. He's become, I think, in nature, very much like a studio darling. I mean, he's he makes with, both with Guardians and with the Suicide Squad. It's obviously you know an offbeat superhero blockbuster, yeah. But it still definitely hits all the crowd pleasing beats you would want in a blockbuster, and he seems happy to do it. And he's made mm-hmm. very clear that these are not you know studio mandated moves. It's like no, this is the movie he wanted to make, and like yeah. it's just interesting because you know we we kind of talk about James Gunn like he's even to this day kind of this you know off the wall break the rules type, and it's like sure kind of, but like he's clearly 
happy to make, you know, and it's just in his style. This isn't a criticism of him. It's just in his style now to make movies that really work for a lot of people rather than kind of, you know, trying to just elicit some visceral reaction out of somebody. It's still insane. And we'll get into it when we talk about the last film in the trilogy, but it's just, he has become what I never would have expected. In my opinion, he's my favorite current blockbuster director. Okay. I just think it's just astounding that going from 2010 with Super Mm -hmm. to Guardians of the Galaxy, it feels like him, but also feels like a giant mature step in his filmmaking that I never, ever expected. What, Super or going going from from Super to to Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, oh yeah. And then going from Guardians to Guardians Volume 2, the amount of shit, the amount of creativity in Volume 2 is... Uh, even there's more than a good chunk of the MCU. It's fucking insane how just they let him do what he wants in volume yeah, two. Right. And then in the suicide squad, it's just a rated R dark, just like, but really fun and juvenile and really well-written character drama that just so happens to be about a bunch of low level DC villains. Yeah. that are forced to do a possible missions. And it's like, it's insane to think that this guy is going like going from the first film we will talk about in our trilogy <laughs> to now, never in my life would I yeah, really right. anticipate it. Then again, it is I he mean, does even, follow like some of the same steps as like I mean James Cameron. Some of his early stuff is like he worked on Empire Strikes Back a little bit and then did Piranha Two was like right, his first right. directed film. Well, and, and like then, Peter Jackson, yeah, went Peter, from oh, his gross the, out movies to Lord of the Rings. That might one be of the, the most, better like, example. Prestigious blockbuster tr- oh yes series of all time his his movies are off the wall as well yeah pre uh pre lord, lord of the rings. rings and it's it's astounding to watch the suicide squad and just be like this is just full-on gun like, yeah yeah it's it's really hard to like watch that and go like oh the studio really wanted they forced them to put starro in like <laughs> there's no way yeah no never never in my life would i consider anything that he does in that film like dc wanting them him to do yeah like and he just commits to it fully but also embraces the silliness which is why i think gun is the brighter has is the bright spot in both the mcu and the dcu it's just like he takes the weirder dumber aspects and just fucking commits to it Mm -hmm. and is willing to just like here's howard the duck for five seconds that's right he's here there's cosmo the dog who talks but we're just going to throw him in there because why not? Yeah, we're going to make a, a heartfelt movie about yeah. a talking raccoon in a tree. We're going to make like, we're gonna make Ego the Living Planet the main <laughs> villain in yeah. Volume 2. Yeah. It's it just like, it's so much fun to watch the Suicide Squad and be like, this is, this is what they've been trying to do. Where it's like with DC's like, oh, what if we just like throw a film idea to a director and let him do whatever he wants and not have to worry about really continuity Yeah. And they've tried that to a degree with like with like Joker. Yeah. And I think with their their newest thing where they're like they're trying to make I think at least five or six original DC films for HBO Max. Yeah. And I think they're gonna try and do that with them as well. And I think with James Gunn, it was really clear that like it worked for him. Mm-hmm. And I hope for later films like I don't know about the fucking Flash. I have I have no opinion on yeah. how that's gonna turn out. I have to I have to see <laughs> something of that. Right, right. But like I I like the fact that like you know I, I feel like David F. Sandberg with a uh, with Flash with Shazam too. 
Like, I'm like, oh, this could be kind of cool. I'm excited yeah. to see what he does doing weirder stuff. And I feel like if this if this leads to... Because that's the thing, too, is, like, we can't necessarily say that this is going to really change much for either DC or Marvel. Right. We just know for right now that, like, Gunn has the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special set for 2022, which yeah. is canon, and we right. it has to be watched. He says it's must-see must must viewing. viewing for guardians 3 and guardians volume 3 is coming out in 2023 yeah following and year. walter hamada of dc just said that like mm-hmm. they are planning to make more dc films with james gunn yeah what, so, suicide squad or not like they're wanting they to make more to movies more, with him yeah. which makes sense and it's hard not to watch suicide squad and be like that's that style is there the cast of characters is there yeah. like gunn has accumulated such a fun uh like Calvacade of character actors. Right. They're like just, right, right, right. just seeing Nathan Fillion. <laughs> yeah, the gun roster the is just gun. a blast. Yeah, and Michael Rooker. It's always a blast to see uh-huh. Michael Rooker. Yeah. And his brother, and Sean Gunn. Yeah, Sean Gunn always playing like two roles yeah. in a movie. He's fucking Calendar Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so funny to see all that. And I'm excited to see where he goes from here. And yeah, definitely watch it. Especially if you're, especially if you're one of those people where it's like, the MCU is boring to me. I don't like it. I want something new. Or like, I don't like DC. Yeah. It's like this is this is the weirdest shit you could really get from DC right now. Well, the, as well the as, weirdest that's also coherent. Yeah. And you know, yeah, a well, it's unified, not an interesting yeah, story. Yeah, it's not gonna be. It's not gonna be like a, a French neo noir yeah. <laughs> superhero. I mean, to be honest, you know, and this is not obviously a criticism against the suicide squad because i really enjoy the mcu but it's kind of the most marvel-y movie they've made yet and yet yeah. also very expressive mm-hmm. in that gunway in yeah. the way that the guardians movies are marvel movies but also very much guns movies isn't that also funny because it was it was pretty clear that the way that 2016 suicide squad was supposed to be cut was like a a mix of Deadpool and Guardians. Yeah. And it fails at yeah. that point. And then you get the guy who does Guardians <laughs> and he just brings that magic that right, is like right. the better the better half of the MCU to your universe. And it's right. like, oh, maybe we can do things now. <laughs> but yeah. Let's just jump into it now that we're talking about Yeah, Gun now Hell. that we've now that we've we've started the the I guess you're wondering how I got here with the <laughs> Suicide scratch. Squad. And then Record Scratch Freeze Frame rewind back to nineteen ninety seven to start our trilogy. Yes. But before we get to that, hello everyone, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, and on Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, we take a trio of films, whether tied by director, cast, thematic elements, or just by number, and we talk about the good the bad, and the weird surrounding those three films. And in case you haven't noticed yet, we are doing a James Gunn trilogy titled The Rise of Gunn. Mm-hmm. This is a trilogy talking about the three films that we feel like are a bit of a milestone for James Gunn prior to him becoming what I would consider one of my one of the best blockbuster, modern blockbuster yeah, well, directors. Cer- certainly a mainstream appeal. Yes. Yeah. And today we're going to be talking about 1997's Tromeo and Juliet. 2006's Slither and 2010's Super. Super. And to just jump in to 1997's Tromeo and Juliet, this is not directed by James Gunn. No. This is actually his first official screenwriting effort. Mm-hmm. So Gunn was born in St. Louis, Missouri. He went to, I believe, I he went to Columbia for his master's in creative writing, I believe. And while he was in Columbia, I think he ended up going to Troma, 
Yeah. They, and working with trauma because yeah. he he was always he always had an affinity for trauma growing up, and in the process of going to trauma in the early nineties, trauma studios, which in case if you don't know, trauma studios is like the king of B movie schlock. Yeah, it's independent like, kind yeah. of shock art film. It's like it's New Jersey. It's a New Jersey company. It's East Coast as can be, <laughs> and has been making B movie schlock for decades even up to the 2020s i'm pretty sure they had a few films absolutely lloyd kaufman's going strong (laughs) and and if you're curious like what the fuck is trauma made the most you know Mm -hmm. the biggest property is the toxic avenger oh yeah which is actually getting a remake next supposed to be out next year with peter dinklage peter dinklage and and uh, some other star like it's a pretty yeah it's it's from legendary yeah. Which is wild. Yeah, it's not like it's a trauma movie. It's, no, it's, it's, it's being legit. made as like a blockbuster. The like the, the studio that produces like Godzilla versus Kong <laughs> yeah. and shit like that. But uh, they're known for the the Toxic Avenger, uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man, fucking uh, Class of Nukem High, Surf Nazis. Literally, yeah. if you just think of like a wild, maybe airbrushed, silly '80s art on like a VHS cover. Chances are it could be trauma. Yeah, and like college posters and stuff. Yes, I feel like. which I do love at Tromeo and Juliet. How nearly every single set has like a poster of trauma films. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Poultry Geist is another one. Yeah, yeah Poultry Geist is probably their most modern, like popular quote unquote yeah, film. It's right. like very. It's I've seen clips of that, and it's just a fucking trauma film in the two thousands, which <laughs> yeah. I love. And. uh yeah, it's it's interesting to go into Tromeo and Juliet mainly because, for me, I have a bit of a history with Troma in terms of like what I've seen of their stuff. But Andy had no history other than clips of certain films. Yeah, so you had I, never I would seen say a full I was, Troma I was film. familiar with them. I'd never sat down and watched an actual movie. I'd seen. I feel like, you know, without like guessing, uh, most of the highlights of Toxic Avenger. Um, that was the one I was most familiar with, mm-hmm. and probably bits and pieces from like Poultry Geist and like Cannibal the Musical. Um, oh yeah, Cannibal the Musical is. And uh, so I'd seen bits and pieces here and there. I knew what they were about. I knew about James Gunn's history with them, and you can tell even in his later movies how he comes from trauma. Oh, so yeah. like it all oh, made yeah. sense. I knew what I was getting into, kind of. <laughs> mostly, I think I mostly so, did, and I was still unimpressed. Yeah. So, Tromeo and Juliet, if you can't already tell by the title, is a 90s punk, you know, schlocky, smutty interpretation of the classic Shakespeare yeah. romance. I, my understanding is that the the intent of the movie was to shock audiences in the way that Shakespeare would have shocked his audiences at the time. That sounds like shit that Lloyd Kaufman would which say. Sound, without... Which, once you see it, is kind of feels like bullshit oh i it um, sounds like the perfect way to sell that film to distributors yeah oh which, yeah which i would love if that was from lloyd kaufman himself um, yeah and because i mean it is known that shakespeare did you know have many dissenters in his time people who thought he was trash and was mm-hmm. making exploitative gross crap casting you know I yeah don't know. um and so this is i guess trying to evoke that same response well, the thing too is in like the most '90s way possible. What's what's so funny too is like this film was basically in development script wise for like most of the early '90s, where it was like they had other trauma employees try to write it as like full blown Shakespeare esque, and even try to like make Toxic Avenger a side character, 
and other Trump employees fucking hated it. Yeah. So they're like, we're not going to do that. And then a little a little young screenwriter known as James Gunn, who I think is in his late mid to late twenties at the right. time, just starts writing his interpretation. And I I don't know if this is true, but the rumor I read that is like he he set out to do the film in iambic pentameter. Right. which is a classic Shakespeare Yeah, approach. mostly stick to the original yeah. Yeah. Uh, play. And he got bored and thought it was difficult to do that, so instead he just wrote it normally and <laughs> lied to Lloyd Kaufman and said that it was I Am a Pentameter. Yeah. Well, and and included, Lloyd Kaufman didn't know, right. so well, he just accepted it. Yeah, and he and he does include, like some lines are kept kind of yes. sparsely here and there. You get original lines or slightly modified lines from the original mm-hmm. play. I will say I do love that approach with Gunn where it's like when it's supposed to be the real romance between Tromeo and Juliet, he just like goes into like using the old text as like the romanticized kind yeah. of like beautiful, like they're truly falling in love. In terms of Tromeo and Juliet going into this film, at least for me personally, I knew that in terms of directing style, in terms of production design and all that, like gun associate directed, but it's mainly Kaufman. Yeah. So I'm not really watching this film to be like, ooh, I wonder if we're gonna see some early gun camera stuff no, or early not gun really, like yeah. it's not no. his movie in that no. way. But I, so that's why in the case I was like, I'm curious into the script what he tries to do for his first film. And it's very clear that in the film that there are little flourishes here and there that feel like, ooh, that's a cheeky thing to do, Gunn. I like what you're trying to do, but it's still just at the end of the day, a trauma film. Yeah, it's and very much like like when you when you uh, look back to a couple years ago during the whole scandal with him and his you know uh, you know vile <laughs> yeah. jokes on yeah, Twitter yeah, and yeah. stuff yeah. that he got canceled the, for, yeah. um, and you look at like his response to all of that and how how he's kind of like, I was a very different person. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't today make the jokes that I made then. I don't think they were funny. Uh-huh. I was trying to, you know, shock people. Yeah, provoker, and yeah, I was coming response. from a place of anger and, you know, resentment at the world and that sort of thing. And, like, that's kind of what I get out of the attempts at humor in this script is very much just like, yeah. oh, yeah, we're just trying to get a reaction. There's not really a lot clever going on other than mm-hmm. some interesting choices kind of conceptually. Yeah. A lot of um, a lot of uh, but a lot it's of... not the gun that you would recognize today. No, no. Uh, it, there, there's a little bit of gun in the script here that you can kind of recognize mm. a little bit later with Slither and yeah, Super. Absolutely. Not a huge bit, but like. But by now, this... it's kind of aside yeah. from his kind of wild streak that's just uh-huh. inherent to his work. It's largely it's not recognizable as modern yeah. gun. No, but it it's but it yeah. has it has the vein when you say like he wrote a script for a smutty <laughs> softcore porn esque Romeo and Juliet where Lemmy from Motorhead is the narrator yeah. for every single act as well as the beginning and epilogue. And it's like that sounds batshit insane, but also kinda of funny. And you watch it and that's kind of the film. Like it really is yeah. like it's just a batshit insane uh, meant to be batshit. Like that's the thing too about Troma is, Troma is a company that knows they are making schlock. They are making shit. Right. And to some people, I would say to me to a certain degree, depending on which one of their films it is, it mo- some people find that endearing and give it a cult like quality. Yeah. To well, it. and it can be clever too. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think the Toxic Avenger really does that well, which is probably why it's one of their biggest yes, films it's their biggest, because yeah, it's property it's while it is a gross out kind of exploitative schlock movie it's mm-hmm. 
fun and goofy and kind of you know play yeah. you know it's it's kind of parodying a lot of things yeah par- just parodying um, like the superhero origin story and making it yeah gorier and goofier and- yeah and with this at least i personally did not get a lot of like oh they're doing something interesting or subversive or deconstructive with the material mm-hmm. i very much got a kind of except for you know certain story decisions especially at the end very much kind of a a beat for beat retelling of Romeo and Juliet, but just with really shitty crude jokes. Yeah, well, that's good. What's so funny too is like it's watching it. I was basically just going like, yeah, I guess I didn't know what I expected. Like the first twenty yeah. minutes really has moments where it's like, wow, like <laughs> yeah. okay, this is really just like either goes bonkers or softcore porn like real fast yeah and i for some reason did not expect that but i'm like well i guess if i'm thinking of a trauma romance film i guess that is more in line than what i anticipated however there are what's funny too is though like there are little moments where it's like that actor is actually really trying and he's doing a decent job but he also has been for the most of this film just like fucking not phoning it in, but just being the absolute goofiest motherfucker. That yeah, yeah, be. That, that's uh, the most I can probably say for this movie is the cast's conviction yeah. to the script. Like, like Monty or Marty, Marty Martini, who is Montague in the film, mm-hmm. his death is goofy as shit. But when he dies, like that actor puts so much into yeah. like trying to give it some serious like vibrato for like bravado for like a finale, and it's like. <laughs> what the fuck is this guy coming from? Like, this yeah. guy's been the goofball for most of it. I think at one point he, like, yeah, it, it's right but right after he, like, pisses on a dude, just, like, outright. You just yeah. watch him piss on somebody, and it's like, <laughs> this movie's so wild. And it's meant to be, but at the same time, it doesn't excuse the fact that it it's not a good movie. And the only real benefit you get from this film is if you watch it in a so-bad-it's-good light, which is, I think, most of what Trauma has... kind of tried to be yeah because like there's there's so many scenes in this film where i just like laughed out loud because i was like i have no idea what the fuck this is trying to say but it's so i don't know that it is is trying huh i don't know that it is that's the thing though is like there's a dream sequence where tromeo and juliet are like juliet's dreaming about tromeo and it's supposed to be a sexual dream and then like she starts to get pregnant and then he opens up her stomach and it's just popcorn yeah and it's like Okay. Well, it's popcorn and rats. <laughs> and then when the rats showed up, yeah. I was like, what exactly? Okay. I'm just yeah. trying to think of like the thought process of like writing that into a script. Right. I think it's, yeah. It, was... it could definitely just be like, and rats and popcorn, because funny, right? It makes well, no sense. Yeah, and also gross. We're associating food and dirty animals with uh, the uh, reproductive system. Yeah, the give birth. And romance and sex. Yeah. And I mean, like... <sighs> It just <laughs> it it's one of those movies that I feel like it makes me think about like okay my middle school self and my friends and the stuff we would say that we thought we that we thought was hilarious at the time oh, that yeah. looking back is just either embarrassing or horrifying yeah. or like like if you were watching yourself you'd just look at yourself with a dead blank stare like why why did you think that anybody wanted Mm-hmm. to hear that or see that and not even in like i was not put off by this movie in like a gross out way no you know, i mean because i knew to expect that i was not yeah. i was not the prude watching this film like ugh, i can't believe they showed a penis snake that vomited on juliet <laughs> like, <laughs> Shit, I, forgot, I, I forgot about I didn't that care, but like just 
those kinds of scenes i was kind of just like really like you a you thought that would get a reaction out of me or b you thought that was funny or clever <laughs> hey and i don't it's, know it's rebellious it's the yeah, 90s I guess it is you know fuck the system you can't tell us what to do yeah like what's so wild about trauma too is like i think trauma is best uh i think trauma is taken at its best when you have absolutely no expectations because then at that moment you can build your foundation of I hate this or I yeah, love this. Right. Because I remember the first time I had seen trauma, it was Toxic Avenger. It mm-hmm. was like G four used to run um, a series called Movies That Don't Suck. Yeah. And there were sometimes late at night they would just play trauma films. Yeah. And so I watched it and there's a scene in that film that like didn't haunt me, but I've never forgotten. Which where scene? it's a scene where there's a little boy on a bike and he's riding his bike just like mm-hmm. at night, just doing his own thing. And then the antagonist punks decide to push him off his bike. <laughs> and then they decide, what if we back up and we run this kid over? Yep. And as a 13-year-old, I'm like, wait, I've seen like, <laughs> you know, Indiana Jones, Jaws. I've seen Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah. There's some things you can't do in a movie, and killing a kid is one of them. Yeah. Not only do they kill the kid in that scene in Toxic Avenger, you see his head explode like a melon. Yeah, under the And carbon. from that moment, as a teenager, I went, oh, I guess you could do anything yeah. in a film. I guess if you put your mind to it and you really want to. <laughs> I guess if you it, find the right people to make it with you, yeah. you can throw, do it. Yeah, throw shit at the chalkboard, I guess. Right. I don't know. And that's kind of what this film feels like, too. I think most of the stuff I've seen of Troma has that vibe where it's oh, just yeah. like, fuck it. I mean, I'm sure that this. is their approach to yeah. writing and making films. Yeah. I will say it's that the, la- the, the latter joke made me the laugh uh, it's like uh, oh when, yeah, when yeah, yeah he kills tyrone mm-hmm. uh everyone dies sooner or later and then right, he throws yeah. him into a ladder. yeah i was kind of like <laughs> it was like jeez you can see you it's like you could see james good writing that going this is probably the worst thing but it's gonna come back around to being funny as soon as it's said on screen because yeah. it's such a horrible dad joke uh-huh. that like just flips just into so like lazy they, they didn't just say that and that's also the scene where James Gunn makes a cameo. Yes. As as Peanut Dad, I think that's what he's called in the because yeah. like they're singing about peanuts in the in the car, <laughs> and then Tyrone's decapitated head falls on the the, car. Uh, the found a peanut father. Yeah, found a peanut. Father. <laughs> and it's just so funny, just how, just overall, this film is not worth seeing unless you're just no. like, like fuck it. You know, I like gun. I think I could handle anything. Yeah. Get a six pack. You sit down. You watch it, and you go, "Well, I guess this is what I expected yeah, from to, trauma." To be honest, from a from a gun angle, you're not going to get that much out of this. No. To be honest, even if you're interested in trauma, this is, I have to imagine, probably not in the top end of their films. No, it, it does have a um, cult. I think it probably has it a does. cult following, like yeah. most of trauma stuff, but like. This film is to a deg- this film is important to Gunn because it's his first screenwriting credit, but it also is important to see that he has an affinity for Schlock mm-hmm. because Schlock comes back all the way up to the Suicide Squad. Schlock has a bit of a has a has a kind of a permeance in yeah. his work in a good way, where he doesn't he doesn't do edgy Schlock anymore. Yeah, he just uses like what how much fun Schlock can be in the right settings and 
That's why Tromeo and Juliet as a full blown smutty schlock film, <laughs> it is uh it's a fun one watch and then like you forget about it almost immediately. Yeah, or um, while you're watching. Huh? Yeah, or while you're watching. Oh it. yeah. I mean that's <laughs> the thing too, is like I mean, you did not like this at all. No, I got nothing out of it. And I and I just for me I was like, well, I won't forget cackling at like this moment or that moment uh-huh. but it's not going to be like in my top circulation for so bad it's good movies yeah it's just going to be like if someone's like hey what's a trauma film that's going to make me like laugh and it's like oh Tromeo and Juliet will do it for you <laughs> it's almost two hours long which is yeah. wild considering it's the longest of the three of these films yeah but and um it I to be honest feels long it does feel long I do think like at a certain point when it when like Romeo and Juliet, Tromeo, my apologies. When Tromeo and Juliet finally get together and I was like, oh, we're only 46 minutes in. The fuck else are they going to do? Right. And then, like, of course, there's other shit that happens. Of course, they have to go through the beats of Romeo and Juliet. And it's just like, (laughs) just think of, like, when Tromeo's father is introduced. In this film, whether they meant to or not. Uh, there's very little people of color representation, and what's there is not great. Not saying it's full-on racist, but at the same time, it really is. Because uh-huh. there's a, there is um, Tromeo's dad, who uh, farts right. at every second. <laughs> there's no reason why he farts. He just no, does. it just happens. Because it's funny. Yeah. Because fart make funny. Yeah. And then there's uh, the, the, the twist on a... They have to go find the... The medicine, because in the original play, the the original romance, they get the medicine that makes Juliet pretend to be dead. Yeah. So she goes to a uh, opium dealer named Fu Chang, <laughs> who is a Rastafarian black man. Yeah. And it's like, oh, look at that. What a subversion. You were expecting a Fu Manchu stereotype, right? And I was like, no, I was really hoping you wouldn't do it at right, all. Right, right. But here we are. <laughs> but that does lead to, in that scene, a funny joke where Juliet just says the whole story and everyone falls asleep. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I guess it's whatever. But other than that, it's like it's mainly just a bunch of white people <laughs> going absolutely batshit insane. And what's funny too, I mean, we talked to we talked about it off mic initially, but we'll talk about it now. Is like there are like two actors who are in this: uh, James Gunn's brother Sean Gunn and Stephen Blackheart. Yeah, Stephen Blackheart, uh, who will show up in basically almost every one of their every one of his films afterwards. Right. So that's great that they're like you see some of the early adopters yeah. of of Gunn and becoming friends with Gunn and bringing them back. and Yeah. Well, and we're about to see even more actors who will be added in this next film as recurring oh, actors who show up in his future movies. Yeah. And so, you know, Tromeo and Juliet comes out in 97. It's made on a $350,000 <laughs> budget, which is hilarious because you could not see that at all in the film. And uh, I think in the late 90s, after that film was released, James Gunn shows up at a film festival Apparently has like a spiritual awakening, or just kind of has like a, a like an existential kind of crisis, and realizes he wants to do something else with his life. So he leaves Troma, moves to L.A. I believe in 2000 2001 he marries a little known actress. You probably have heard of her, Jenna Fisher, who will end Although up becoming at that time. You probably wouldn't have. No, not at that time, and who is now known as Pam from The Office. Yep. Yes, James Gunn was at one point married to Pam from The Office, <laughs> and then in 2002. He starts to write Super, mm-hmm. and he starts to kind of be conflicted about this and that and wonder if it's going to work out. And most studios go, it's too violent. We don't know if we're going to really work with this. 
And so he goes and starts to do other things in the process of going from New York to L.A. or East Coast to West Coast. Uh, he does write a bunch of studio stuff. He writes the specials, which I think he also acts in, which yeah. is like a Rob Lowe superhero parody in 1999. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, it doesn't make a lot of money. The world he, wasn't ready for parodies of superheroes because superheroes were hardly mainstream I was in movies say, I don't yet. think X-Men even came out no. that year yet. Um, both live-action Scooby-Doo films were written by James Gunn, yep. uh, which you can't tell. I would say really in either of I mean you can kind of tell to a degree Only I think a in, bit. I think in the first one the most telling thing is uh spoilers for Scooby Doo if you don't know. Uh Scrappy Doo being the antagonist feels like a very James Gunn choice. Yeah. A well, hilarious kind of like the, the, fan choice. Yeah, kind of the periodic or the occasional crude humor mm-hmm. thrown in is kind of oh, okay, James yeah. Gunn, I see you trying to do this with Scooby Doo. Yeah, and initially those the first Scooby Doo film was supposed to be, I think not hard R, but like a light R parody comedy of the Scooby-Doo property, yeah. which they didn't want, so they rewrote it, and they rechanged it up into it to be like a PG-PG-13. And then they did a sequel, Monsters Unleashed, which was written by James Gunn. He also wrote uh, a film we've actually covered on this podcast with the Rise of Snyder trilogy, which is Dawn of the Dead yeah. remake, which has definitely changed in between his script, which is more satirical. Than yeah, the had about all the Snyder gunisms film. squeezed out of it. Yeah, <laughs> by, by the time Snyder. Snyder did it. And up until 2006, he was really doing other screenplays, but he decided at a certain point he was able to get a chance to do one of his own scripts. And that leads to 2006's Slither. Yeah. A homage to, honestly, 80s... Schlock, Schlock, Alien Invasion. Yeah, horror yeah, it's kind of is... a pastiche of a bunch of kind of yeah, goofy like alien monster horror from the eighties. It reminds me of Critters a lot, where yeah. it's like instead of it being a bunch of furry aliens that like roll into a ball and attack people, it's slugs that take over yeah, your brain and, and turn you into zombies. Down your throat. Yeah, and it's Slither is meant. I think the way he just he described it is it's not a horror comedy; it's a horror film with some funny elements to it yeah and it's really i think that's a fair assessment because it's not it's not laugh out loud funny for most of it and it's also not super scary but it's just kind of campy throughout and gross and weird and goofy and which feels perfect to what he's trying to do because apparently there's not a lot i would say about his uh, production in terms of this i know it like took about two-ish months to make it was it I was, believe I think it was a fifteen million budget. It's a fifteen so million, by far the biggest budget. Yes, he's worked at, with. at the time with then. Uh, sadly, is a box office flop, but not huge. It's a twelve million box office worldwide. Oh, I think I read it was like uh, three million. It was three million, I think, initially, and then with Canada and then all these other places, I think it's a total of twelve million worldwide yeah. gross, which is a box office flop, not a huge. Yeah, one, opening but still weekend a flop. of three. So his first, his first directorial, his directorial debut was a flop, sadly. <laughs> And it is a niche homage, pastiche, to an era of filmmaking that is perfect for, like, people who went to Blockbuster to find a sleazy, silly right, film right. to watch. But, but unfortunately... In the, but in the mid-2000s, which is maybe the least self-aware era of pop media. Yeah, and in an era where the biggest properties in horror are, like, Saw and Hostel. <laughs> right. Um, it's pretty Which clear. are the modern... Yeah. Gross out schlock movies. And then, like, zombies are making a comeback. Yep. 
it's very well, clear zombies that are like kind of yeah they're sort of almost peaking. Yeah, it's, it's like two years after Dawn of the Dead, and I think Romero's Land of the Dead comes out a year prior yeah. or the same year as this, and this film just kind of comes out has mainly no names, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like the biggest actor in this film, I would say that people might know is Michael Rooker. But at that time, Rooker was only like a secondary, he was a character actor. Yeah, well, like he, hadn't even, he hadn't even done Merle from Walking Dead He hadn't Dead done yet. that yet, no. He, um, he had mainly done at that time, I think most people would either know him as Henry, Portrait of the Serial Killer, which yeah. is like a, a classic, a cult horror classic. Or he's like, I think one of the main antagonists in Days of Thunder, the oh, Tom Cruise yeah. NASCAR film. Yeah. Like he is a he is a bad guy or like a secondary character. He, to you a could say from... he's the the chick Hicks to Tom Cruise's <laughs> Lightning McQueen. I think so I think so. In Days of Thunder, that's um, the case. No, but and... well, and I mean Nathan Fillion, he had already starred on Firefly at this point. I think he just and he gets. This right is the off. same year as Serenity, which is the yeah. feature film mm-hmm. of Firefly. But that's, so but that's a show where it, fl- it, it flopped. Canceled after canceled one season. After a season. Um, and I think and besides that, I think he's also in Two Guys in a Pizza Place, yeah. which is an ABC right, uh, right, comedy right. series. The only other one would probably be Elizabeth Banks, who was at that time a character actor, kind of like Michael yeah. Rooker. I Most mean, notably. Yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah, she's Betty Brant in all three of Raimi's Spider-Man films. Yeah. And I think at that time, probably the most recent thing is she's one of the uh, kind of, she's like she's like the kinky possible love interest for Steve Carell in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Oh, yeah. And that's like that's like two years prior to this. Yeah. and So a lot of kind of fresh faces, yeah, but so not, a, not big names yet. So it's clear that like you have, honestly, with the cast that it has, it's a lot of talent. And it makes sense having this group because in the actual film, Nathan Fillion kills it. Elizabeth Banks kills it. Michael Rooker is an absolute blast yeah. in, in the goofy, slimy, grimy makeup and <laughs> is playing almost to a degree um, Vincent D'Onofrio in Men in Black. Yeah, the cockroach uh, dude. Yeah, the cockroach guy, uh, the cockroach alien. And is just outright, I think, out of the three of these films – I would only say it's probably my favorite only because it's the tightest. I think this movie is tight. Of the three, it knows what it is. Yes. And what it is is fun. I would say Tromeo and Juliet also knows what it is. Yes. But it's not any fun. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's there's anything I think Gunn has shown in his writing when he's able to, like, when his writing's able to shine through a film. He knows exactly what he's writing. Yeah. He knows exactly what type of tone he's going for, even if he's shifting tones here and there he yeah. knows what he's doing and in slither it's very clear slither. that slither it's very clear in slither that this is an alien invasion film that fit, would fit perfectly in the 80s but what makes it funny now is the almost <laughs> that genuine <laughs> is that it's not in the 80s and that everyone has a genuine reaction to how fucked up and gross everything is yeah that's kind of one of the really fun parts about it is everyone is just every character kind of one by one is just like ah. Uh. Like what? Yeah. This this is happening. This is real. This is this is disgusting. I, it's like little things where like in the film is at one point Elizabeth Banks just like tells Nathan Fillion like good luck after just like this monumental thing happened in the film and he just goes like okay yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like it's like I I guess that'll help. Yeah, but, and, uh, and it's just also I think this movie really benefits from you can just tell that that James Gunn was kind of able to with a bunch of actors that he mostly 
didn't know at that point, I think, um, was able to create a space where everybody was on the same page. Everybody knew what kind of movie they were making and everybody wanted to make that movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you can tell everybody is fully on board with this and fully mm-hmm. willing to play their part, big or little. Yeah, like that quote I said about what Gunn said about the film, I think is what he told Fillion when Fillion was brought on board. Because apparently Fillion was added to the film like a week or two before shooting. <laughs> Like, he was the, one of the last people to be added, and it's insane because he's perfect. Yeah. And I think a lot of the reason why is because that direction is the best way to approach the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also crazy, too, that, like, it's really good exposition. Like, I was really shocked in the film that there are moments where there is expository dialogue explaining relationships, but they're done in a really good, like, genuinely relatable way yeah. where it's like... The biggest info dump is like Nathan Fillion explaining to like his co his like co share his deputy, and like this kid who's just walk with him as they're crossing the street like the relationship between Elizabeth Banks's Starla and uh, Michael Rooker's Grant Grant because yeah. his name is Grant Grant, Grant Grant because in the film it's people think that Elizabeth Banks's Starla is a bit of a gold digger because she married. Uh, Michael Rooker's really rich. We don't know why he's rich. He's yeah. just rich. Yeah. And he and Nathan Fillion is like it's trying to establish early on that Nathan Fillion is head over heels for Starla and always has been. And so like he's the one giving the exposition dump, and it's clear it's because he's just been waiting. Yeah, he's for just a been chance. obsessed. Yeah, he's waiting for a chance to jump um, in. Yeah, and, and the, well, and the movie is also really efficient in how it kind of picks up character important characters along the way. Oh, yes. Like, it doesn't spend a ton of time at the beginning just cutting from one unrelated character to another, mm-hmm. you know, only to make you wait for them to pay it off later by bringing them together. It's kind of like, well, the characters show up when they're required to by the story, and then yeah. they're there, and it's like, okay. Like, there's the, I can't remember her name, but the young girl. Yeah, uh, who, Kylie? Is yeah, Kylie? doesn't show up until, like, half or two-thirds of the way through the movie, and then she's kind of one of the main figures in the end. Yeah, like the eldest daughter of like an oil guy who like they yeah. they ask they let him know that like they're they're hunting Michael Rooker in the film and they let him and his family know that they're hunting this guy and yeah, well, she just shows up. Yeah, basically Michael Rook or Grant Grant gets infected by the monster and the monster version of Grant Grant runs off into the woods behind this rich guy's house. Yeah, and so be- they ba- the cops basically say, "Hey, we're gonna go hunt this thing in your mm-hmm. in your woods. Sit tight." Yeah. And, and then they, when that goes south, then the slugs get to the house and kill the whole family except for the eldest daughter. Yeah, who is at that time just established as like having these really pretty acrylic nails. Like that's all <laughs> yeah. her whole thing. She's angsty and has these pretty nails and doesn't want to be and wants to be left alone. And yeah. then when she's for when she's trying to be taken over by one of the slugs, she is lucky enough to like be able to control it and as she's being turned she can see the history yeah, well, of she the kind slugs. Of, yeah, she kind of catches the slug mid-takeover. Mm-hmm. like Because they, they take people over by going in their mouths and then, like, attaching to their brains or something. Yeah, and she, like, grabs it as it's going in her mouth, but it's already in her mouth. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, connecting with her, but then she rips it out. So she, like, sees. Then she becomes the kind of critical plot. Yeah, she becomes, yeah. like, the exposition a bit in terms of the alien species. Yeah, the how do we fit, how do we yeah. beat them, how do we figure out what they are. Which is unique, because in that regard, in most films like that, it would be, like, a scientist who's coming into the town right, being like, right. you have to understand, yeah, we didn't and, mean and this to happen. Yeah. But no, it's just a, 
It's just an angsty teenage girl who was lucky enough to stop a slug yeah. from going down her throat. And I mean, yeah, you could say that's contrived, but I would take that over the random scientist character being introduced and the, you know, teenage girl being killed off in a gory bathtub scene. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, those little kind of things that Gunn sort of tweaks to the formula of these schlocky, you know, mm-hmm. horror movies that makes it you know makes it his and makes it fun and more endearing than it otherwise would be it's also fun to see too that like a bit of a subversion as well in these types of films is the fact that in horror it seems to have a mainly the best of horror is a progressive nature towards female characters Mm -hmm. and it's it's really good how gun gives starla the strength and the intelligence to make her one of the gang that like is willing to be in the thick of it and is not yeah. a loose end and is genuinely helpful. Right. And isn't like, doesn't like just succumb to her, mm-hmm. you know, love for the man that used to be her husband. Yeah. And like that she, sort of thing. like she's, she outsmarts mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Like when she, the when she is taunted by him, when he starts to hive mind all the zombies and is using like Nathan Fillion's, partner to kind of talk to her yeah like you won't shoot me and she just straight up blows his head off <laughs> yeah. and it's like fuck you i'm gonna you can't tell me what to do uh-huh. uh we we also need to talk about um is it greg harris who plays the mayor i think uh, uh mr pib guy yeah mr pib yeah, guy right. mayor mccready yeah uh who is named after um kurt russell's character from the thing <laughs> uh which is again this film is just packed to the gills with like references to other horror films that gun loves because this is also this film from what i saw is mainly inspired by a cronenberg film named shivers and the broods which i believe Mm -hmm. is another 80s horror film two that i read the synopsis seem schlocky as all hell but also look like a bunch of fun yeah and which makes sense with a film like this or that those are the things that he's homaging and it's really fun to see all the side characters who get to survive because the ones that don't end up being really fun kind of zombie characters for a second. Like I love Jenna Fisher who shows up for a brief moment as like the assistant character. Mm-hmm. And I love when she's uh, the, the nasty grocery <laughs> zombie like, where it's like, yeah. welcome back. Yeah. She basically gets her, uh, her exorcist moment. Where yeah. Which she's, is great. Yeah. Which is great. And it's the, the mayor McCready is just an absolute blast of a character. Oh, yeah. He's such an asshole. He's an idiot. He's, he's an asshole. He's short. He has short patience, mm-hmm. you know, he's just funny. And it's even funnier too, that he is now a James Gunn character actor that is just now coming back, comes back yeah, in super guess... comes back. He is Peter Quill's grandpa in both guardians films. Yeah. I assume he might have a bit role in Suicide Squad, knowing yeah. James Gunn. It's but... it's fun watching him in in the Guardians movies, and he has just such this like sweet grandpa, warm energy. paternal, yeah, yeah, Guardian energy. And it's like in his previous two movies with Gunn, he's just a fucking dick. Yeah, it's his introduction. So there is perfect where he gets stuck at a traffic stop. He starts yelling at the car, saying like "fuck you, you piece of shit." And then there's like a woman across the street with her daughter going. Good morning, mayor. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is the type of mayor this town has. Okay. When he gets great. that he gets that great rant that like um, if this movie were bigger, it would be an iconic rant. Uh of just him. Mr. Yeah, Pip. just everything's going to shit. Aliens are invading and there's no more fucking Mr. Pip. The man just wants a Mr. Pip. He wants some caffeine. He can't <laughs> yeah. get it. And and uh Nathan Fillion's just like well, I'll get right sorry on about that. that. I'll get it right get right on. 
but it's also funny too because he's the perfect asshole who's fun to watch and also gets a honestly the perfect comedic death that he deserves where yeah. it's like he becomes one of the monsters and he's still sentient enough that he can he basically wants to die because he doesn't want to become like a full on because uh, he becomes almost like a breeder. I think they I think yeah. Rooker's alien like makes him a breeder for all these aliens and he comes up to Nathan Fillion's character and is like shoot me please and then like <laughs> Nathan Fillion without hesitation just blows his brains out and walks away. <laughs> and you can see in his face he's acting at all the stress and annoyance that that guy has brought onto him and it's perfect. Yeah. And it's just a tight 90 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's exactly quick, what it's you'd want easy. it to be. And it is gross as all hell. Oh, yeah, honestly. I mean, I, I'm not super easily grossed out by movies. And I wasn't, like, you know, pushed to the brink by this movie. But there's a lot of moments where I'm just like, Ugh, we're, uh, we're actually seeing that? It's, just tendrils being put into people. That, and, yes. And, that was... And I forgot how long that scene is. The initial the initial yeah. insertion of, like, all the, the eggs and whatnot. Yeah. And it's like, oh. Fuck. Well, and just the, I mean, the, the prosthetics and makeup on people yes. is great as they're just being deformed. Michael Rooker's kind of final form as the giant hive mind beast. Which is, is just the disgusting. right amount of slimy yeah. and gross. And well, and to be honest, I mean, the CGI has obviously aged, but they do such a good job of blending all the like gobs of practical effects with the CGI parts yeah. that it's like, it's really not that bad. And honestly, it works the, well. the slugs themselves look great. I yeah. think like um, I, I gun, I think has said like one of his least favorite moments in the film is when Nathan Philly and Elizabeth Banks cover their mouths and all the, the worms kind of cover them as they yeah, run away. Yeah. And all honesty, that scene looks good. It looks fine. Yeah. It, it looks, it looks like with the right amount of lighting, and the right amount of shading, it looks just like, yeah, I, I yeah. believe it. You can kind of tell when the slugs are like receding off of them that it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. there was nothing on them to begin I, with. I think the biggest moment for me is when uh, they kill Michael Rooker. It's when he explodes that feels the most oh, like, sure. like, oh, well, that's not real flame he's type got shit. like seven tentacles floating yeah. around. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm looking at a shot with like seven tentacles <laughs> slapped on top of it. Absolutely. Um, and it's... It's just a fun. It's just, it's honestly a perfect directorial debut for a guy who got a start in trauma. Yeah. Where it's like you have the, the right amount of schlock from those kind of roots, but also has evolved enough as a writer and as a creator to make something that I think is pretty much approachable across the board, especially if you're a fan of this kind of cheesy '80s kind of yeah. horror humor. And um, well, and it was. <laughs> like financially received appropriately for the kind of movie it is yeah like, honestly it makes sense hilariously enough this feels like weirdly the type of film that like if this was a netflix original movie this would have a weird bump in popularity mm-hmm. and then maybe just drop off in a few months but this feels like a film that like if it was pushed on a streaming service like yeah. i think especially with like the amount of people who were in it and just like how niche it is <laughs> like it just feels like Having to put it in theaters feels unfortunate because this is like the perfect cable film yeah. or perfect well, like rental. I feel like, I mean, obviously it kind of achieved a little bit of a cult status, um, but also I, I feel like, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I feel like it played on TV a lot. It did. I, I, um, I watched it. The first time I had seen it was on like premium channels and or sci-fi. 
Yeah, like sci-fi. Movies like yeah, that. definitely like a sci-fi type movie. And abs- but I and that's not in a bad way. No, I be- better say that than in a bad most way. sci-fi movies. Yeah, absolutely, better than most sci-fi originals. Yeah, but like um, if, it but just yeah. works a lot better than you think. Yeah, and it's and like surprisingly polished, and you know, feels like a relatively you know A-grade theatrical movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is schlocky, but like on production values, it looks like a mainstream movie of 2006 yeah and it's fun and with the budget that it has it looks a lot better than it has any right to yeah yeah and and, and effectively gross actually yeah. to to put a <laughs> i was point gonna ask to, that, to put a point to that about how gross it is less than half an hour in my girlfriend emma had to excuse herself to go vomit <laughs> because of the movie which Granted, part was it uh it it was the first like tendril sticking Oh yeah, I was yeah. I was wondering. I think both Adam and I, when we were watching, first it, where kind I was of like, stomach is this, tendril is this it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ah oh, man, and now going into after Slither, so he makes his first studio film as a director. It flops, unfortunately, and from that point forward, he's kind of in a weird limbo. Doesn't know what he wants to do. However, around the same time that this happens. As they were shooting Slither, um, his wife at the time, Jenna Fisher, was doing The Office at the same time. And she hadn't blown up yet. Mm-hmm. And so when Slither comes out, hilariously, when Slither comes out, that's when The Office hits. The Office becomes a hit. <laughs> and I think Jenna is the fir- is the actress that kind of pushes the film when it's about to come yeah. out. Which is hilarious because she's barely in the film. Right. And while she's shooting The Office... At a certain point, Gunn finishes the script to Sufer, sends it over to Jenna, and Jenna loves the script. And whether it was um, like whether it was shown to him or not, in some way, shape, or form, Rain Wilson gets his hand on the script. <laughs> I think by Jenna Fisher and says, "I think you might like this." Yeah, and Rain he's Wilson kind of weird. Mm-hmm, and at this time in the career of Rain Wilson, he had just done, I think, Juno and. Mm-hmm was kind of in the vibe of his career where he's like, I've been Dwight Schrute for so many years, I don't want to keep doing characters like this. Yeah. And reads this script and Super and basically falls in love with it, says he'll produce it and even help fund it, Yeah. and sends the script over to Elliot Page, who also is in the vibe of like, I've, I've done Juno, I'm sick of people asking <laughs> me Juno-type roles. And he gets a role in super that is we will clarify there's a specific scene with both of them <laughs> we will we will warn you when we discuss that scene because it is it is a it is about sexual assault like we did yeah, with our taylor sheridan it, episode we have to it's clarify a full-blown sexual assault scene. it is and it is wild it's wild it's, it's wild it has to be talked about because it's, it just like it's one of these scenes that even people who haven't seen this film are aware of yeah and it's it's you know you can debate all day it's it's necessity to the film yes. as well so but we will we will we'll get, get there the, eventually get there eventually but rain wilson gets put on this put on the film elliot page is invested and gets on the film as well and the film gets about a five hundred thousand, maybe a little over maybe five hundred thirty thousand yeah. dollar budget and is produced by ifc films and is a film about a man who loses his wife through a drug dealer and in a crisis of faith 
prays to God, believes well, he, he has... Well, he doesn't... His wife doesn't die. His wife doesn't His wife die. leaves him for get, a drug dealer. I will clarify. His wife is a, is a recovering alcoholic and user, gets taken advantage of by a drug dealer. Yeah. Played by Kevin Bacon. Yeah, played by Kevin Bacon, who apparently wasn't supposed to play that role. <laughs> it's not which, surprising. Which is great. Uh, do you know who it was supposed to, no. apparently? Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> And apparently that was the case. And apparently what happened was two weeks or a week that. before they shot, they were going to make sure that Jean-Claude Van Damme was interested, and they never he never got back to him. Oh, my gosh. And so he's like, he went full on AWOL, we need somebody else, and Kevin Bacon just jumps onto the <laughs> film. And Bacon kills it. But Bacon basically, not really kidnaps, but basically coerces um frank played by rain wilson's wife to come with him and live with him and basically leave frank and frank during a crisis of faith prays to god has what he believes is a conversation with god and decides that what god wants him to do is to become a superhero yeah it's it's interesting his origin is kind of framed in a lot of familiar stories that we've heard about on the news over the decades yeah of you know, mentally unstable people being told by God to do something. Yeah. Um, you know, and and uh, it's it's just really interesting to flame. I mean, this is obviously far from a standard superhero story, but it's interesting to to frame your your story that way. It in a lot of ways is kind of an American psycho of like bent on a superhero movie yeah. because it's kind of. Um, you know, it, the movie kind of bounces back and forth between like, and I don't know how much of this is intentional or if it's just in the execution or what, um, kind of bounces back and forth between American Psycho and what incels on the internet think American Psycho is. Um, and it's like, okay, how much are we like actually sympathizing versus how much are we just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What's, what's fascinating too about this film coming out, cause it was never really meant to coincide with the film adaptation of Kick-Ass, no. which comes out a year prior from this, <laughs> but has some of the same elements in terms of having kind of a social commentary about what superheroes does do to people and how people will take it too far. Yeah. How thinking, that obsession can kind of. Yeah. Ruin lives. And how, like, what if, I have all the makings of a superhero. I could become one and then realize, yeah. oh, wait, that's all bullshit. That's right. all made in comics. It's not the real world. Yeah. The difference, though, compared to Kick-Ass and Super is Super has more of a unhinged uh, tilt to it. Yeah, Kick-Ass, and... I mean, for, you know, I mean, it's, it's a good movie, but it also, I think, embraces some of the... Yeah. kind of staples of superhero movies that it's trying to lampoon or criticize. Yeah. Whereas this movie kind of more, almost everything it does sort of flies in the face yeah. of superhero movies. So Kick-ass, I, Kick-ass. I might call Kick-Ass a better or more entertaining movie, but this movie is like yeah. more interesting yes. in what it does with mm-hmm. the material. Kick-Ass is adaptation, especially with its film adaptation, has the vibe of... We are we are producing a Mark Millar comic, but it's also supposed to be for okay. mainstream audiences. Yeah, it's also supposed to be a commercial superhero. Yeah, so movie. we can't have the usual edgy shit that might be in those types yeah. of comics. So it's like instead of like in the original Kick Ass comic where like Hit Girl cleaves a dude's head off, they change that to like yeah. a flamethrower because right. that's more bombastic and silly, or like a Gatling gun yeah. jetpack and shit like that. And then with Super which hilariously was written around the same time as Kick-Ass and has no relation. 
and it's really not based on yeah. anything specifically. No, it's it, it's it's just about what if superhero, what if someone tried to make a superhero for real, and what would that look like? And why would that person have to be <laughs> mentally unstable to yeah. do so? And how like yeah, it's and it's also just really astounding in the film because when I first saw it years ago, because I think the first time this was probably the first gun film I had seen fully. Yeah, like I knew of Slither. I knew that he wrote the two Scooby-Doo films, which I always thought was hilarious. And then I watched this, and I was just shocked by how the marketing did not sell this film. Yeah. But I also understand why they couldn't, because it is a it is all over the place tonally. And I don't yeah. mean that in a bad way. Yeah. And, you know, this might not, at least to some extent, be an in, improper description of the movie, but, like, it felt marketed kind of as just like juno meets superheroes <laughs> um yeah it and had, it's a the, little bit more perverse than that <laughs> oh yeah it's the quirkiness only comes in through the uh honestly through the mindset of frank where like the the kooky kind of like hand-drawn like bam yeah. and pow and shut up crime stuff is entirely in the brain of a man who is having an existential crisis through a superhero facade. Yeah, and a mental breakdown. Yes, and it is fascinating and also makes it a film that is kind of horrifying at times, but funny at times and also has some yeah. fun action at times. It, it Interestingly, I think, probably employs James Gunn's roots at Troma and their philosophy of filmmaking in the cleverest way that, yeah. that you could because it, it does present a lot of really problematic things and occasionally in problematic ways, no two ways about it, and, and you know, kind of forces you to wonder, okay, am I supposed to sympathize with this? Am I sympathizing with this? Yeah. Uh, do I agree? Do I not agree? And it, it kind of, it has kind of a confused tone as a result, um, which, you know, may or may not work for you but it's it's also interesting knowing gun's history and like okay he's actually he's he may not have answers when he's presenting mm -hmm. these really gross things but he's asking questions kind of yeah i, I was kind of I, a fun yeah. thing to explore even if it's not always working I, I would say as somebody who hasn't seen the specials maybe this is different if i had actually seen if i see yeah. that as well but i think out of all the films that he has written and directed at that point super is the most interesting film thematically mm -hmm. and in terms of what he's trying to say now does it all execute on the same level no, no, no not at all but i do agree with you where it's like while i do think slither is a tighter film super is so much more interesting and in yeah, what it's trying there's just to do more to think about yeah slither is what it is it's, it's a schlock fest of it's fun and, and, and grossness yeah mm -hmm. it's well, super super lives in the gray area so hard. It's just like what? Yeah, I didn't expect any of this. Yeah, and it's also wild too to think like again, a lot of the stuff you see in Slither in terms of character development shows up in Super with pretty much everybody, and also in a way that is sometimes extremely subtle. Mm -hmm. Like I really love at the finale. There are moments in the finale where both Michael Rooker and Kevin Bacon are antagonists. Michael Rooker is the main henchman to Kevin Bacon. And there are decisions made in that finale where there's just a moment that sits on Michael Rooker's face and it humanizes that character <laughs> much more than anything we've seen so yeah. far. And then later on in the film, in that finale, 
Kevin Bacon makes a decision that is very realistic in terms of like, here, you can have your wife back. I'm sick of all this bullshit. I don't want you to kill me. But when he has a moment where he believes that like he's lost and that this delusional man thinks he's an actual hero, his ego gets the better of him Uh and he just like attacks Frank and ultimately loses his life in the process. But that's such an interesting character defect Mm -hmm. that Kevin Bacon does a great job with. Yeah, it's also a film that is uh, steeped in homophobic slurs. Oh sure, uh, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> it was it was the, it was the the you know number one pastime of the time. Yeah, and it's also but it also has a has an edge of feeling like it is a commentary on like comic book readers. It's like really weird. Yeah, that, like, oh yeah, because the I person mean, who says homophobic slurs the most is Elliot Page's Libby. Yeah, a, a woman who works at a comic book store who wants to be Frank's sidekick. And as she becomes his sidekick, an unhinged, truly kind of terrifying version of herself comes out. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is you don't... I mean, if you're, you know, kind of pulling yourself out and taking a meta perspective, Frank is unhinged from the start. And clearly not right. But if you're sinking your teeth in and sympathizing with the story and kind of just taking him from his perspective... The interesting thing about Libby, uh, Elliot Page's character, is that, you know, she kind of becomes him, and you see very clearly, like, yeah. oh, that's how fucked up he is. Yes. <laughs> she is how fucked up he is. You know? And it's it's that vibe of, like, the, the pe- it's, it's, again, like, following what you say, like, the people who want to do this, who want to become superheroes and just jump out in the middle of the night and beat up drug dealers with wrenches and fight crime are demented in the minority in that scenario. And there's a reason why superheroes are fiction. Yeah. And it shows in there where it's like the reason why some of the most interesting superhero stuff we've gotten, I mean, since fucking Watchmen is just the idea of like, you have to be a little bit insane in the brain to wear spandex and do this for a living and think like, you know, this isn't normal. Yeah. I mean, Batman is extremely not normal in any sense. Yeah, well, and he's probably and maybe the most mainstream hero that actually, where the comics actually kind of address his yeah. psychosis. And what's even funnier, too, is like out of the film and Super, and it feels very intentional where <laughs> Frank ultimately just becomes like a shitty Punisher yeah. and just doesn't understand how bad that is. Yeah. Because in the in the film he doesn't read Punisher. Yeah, that's yeah. I was expecting <laughs> like in just, that scene just... where where Libby's recommending him comics to like yeah. build his superhero. No, I was because hundred percent expecting yeah. a Punisher. Because that's drop. that's the quote unquote comic book superhero that you don't like want to mimic because yeah you don't emulate him because he's not a hero no he's he's unhinged at the worst psychopath he just yeah happens to be targeting villains yeah bad guys criminals yeah criminals people who look funny at him yeah yeah maybe in an older era were more easily easy to demonize (laughs) and it really took like the era of like garth ennis and like mark millar to really show people like this is really how fucked up this guy is. Yeah. And it took way too long to really address that. Yeah. And so it's like in Super, it's funny that he just becomes an impromptu shitty Punisher and doesn't realize how fucked up that is until the finale. Where it's like, it's in the finale where it's like, in the film he is pushing himself as like a, 
a hero that is bound by religious morals. Yeah, he's who's, sent by God to yeah, do this. Yeah, who is who is told also by this by probably my favorite Nathan Fillion performance <laughs> out of all guns Basically films. Bible Man. Bible Man, the Holy Avenger. The funny, like, I will, I will stand by one of the funniest moments in the film is Frank hallucinates Holy Avenger being outside his window, <laughs> yeah. and Holy Avenger just like. Like Nathan Fillion himself just looks at Frank and just runs away. Yeah, just leaps out of frame. It's so awkward. Yeah. It's so funny in the same process. Also, do you know who plays God in the film? I do not. Rob Zombie. <laughs> it's fantastic. That's awesome. It's wonderful. I think Rob Zombie is uh, also in Slither. He's the doctor that Starla talks to like okay. halfway through the film. So I guess Rob Zombie and James Gunn have a relationship, which yeah, nice. <laughs> Didn't yeah, really expect plus that. Plus Lemmy and Tromeo and Julia. Uh, yeah. It's, James Gunn has a yeah. has a rock streak, a hard rock streak. It seems like it. And it's just super as a film. I will say I do think it's a bit, it drags a bit in the middle. I do. Yeah. I, I think it just like there's a moment where it feels like they're meandering a bit after he gets shot. Like it, it meanders a little bit. Like when yeah, he gets, when he I gets, didn't really notice while I was watching, but I can, mm-hmm. I feel like if I were to watch this again, I would notice that a lot. Because it's like, because like, there's the there's a montage of him going shut up crime and then beating the shit out of like random yeah. people, and then like it gets to him like deciding to throw away the suit, and then he thinks Nathan Fillion's Holy Avenger is telling him to get the suit again, yeah. so he gets it, decides to go after Kevin Bacon, gets found, and then gets shot in the process, and then after that. Most of like for a good like ten to fifteen minutes. So again, it's not a long time, but like he is out of he's out of duty. He's like trying to heal yeah. because he doesn't go to a hospital, <laughs> and uh, he just like he just lets he just sits there and walks around and uh-huh. try to do some mini physical therapy, and then that's when the introduction of uh, Libby as um, Bolty. <laughs> Bolty, yeah. Because yeah, Frank's Frank's uh, alter ego is the Crimson Bolt. He's yes. uh, in his he's kind in of his a kitchen. shitty looking daredevil. Yes, a shitty looking daredevil. He actually also reminds me of around the same time this film comes out. Comes out. This is there's a Woody Harrelson indie superhero film called Defendor. Wow, I've never and, even heard of that. And he <laughs> and Rain Wilson looks kind of like the helmet looks a lot like Woody Harrelson's. I've never seen Defendor, but oh, I do remember Defendor the costume. Defendor looks kind of like something between like the. Uh, um, the sp- like the spirit and the who's that old purple superhero? The, uh, uh, I know what you're talking about. The Phantom. The Phantom. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I remember seeing trailers for that being like, is this okay, a new? I remember su- this is this now. a new subgenre now of like shitty superheroes? <laughs> and yeah, the no, that was like really all it chest. was. But um, yeah, his suit is hilarious. It actually, I love how the suit is designed because it looks like he genuinely made it. Yeah, it looks like and, it's scrapped together. Yeah, and with Gunn as a director, it's also like he is doing a lot of point and shoot in a good way. It's very much it's you can tell it's low budget enough that yeah. a lot of the a lot of the money, a lot of the creative effort goes into the script as well as the visuals for certain scenes, yeah. as well as because like a lot of the setups and stuff are pretty straightforward. Let's just like point and shoot, mm-hmm. and not in a bad way. It just yeah, means lots like of handheld. Yeah, lots of handheld, a lot of handheld. Um, definitely has vibes of like, oh, he's literally sitting in the passenger seat while Rain Wilson's driving in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a really fun movie that like is also just demented as all get out. Yeah, it's saying it, a lot of interesting it, stuff. It keeps kind of getting darker and it, more yes. perverse as it goes yes. on. It kind of starts out 
you kind of think, okay, is this the quirky indie superhero movie? Oh no. Sean oh, no, Sean not. Gunn getting run like getting hit by a car is like that <laughs> moment is equally hilarious as it is like unsettling like all these people <laughs> being around them watching these two it's mad so people abrupt, in a suit and it's just like oh yeah this this is the movie that it yeah. is okay. yeah this is this is exactly what the film is some <laughs> people like a little girl smiles some people like this other people are horrified yeah. by this and then towards the end of the film it takes a turn and where it takes a turn is what we were talking about earlier where um warning we're going to be talking about sexual assaults especially in this scene with really just a very out of it's not out of nowhere but no it's kind of set up as kind of in in part of bolt girls libby's obsession as becoming a superhero Mm -hmm. and she kind of dives headlong into it she also sort of becomes infatuated with frank yeah. And sort of kind of increasingly wants to be validated by him and mm-hmm. wants to be kind of emotionally and physically intimate with him. And then... Yeah, but yeah. like with Frank, Frank is doing this for his wife. He is yeah. dedicated to his wife. He also has this newfound Christian values of no sex before marriage. There's even a scene where he watches like a Bible man-esque episode yeah. Where it's like, no, sex before marriage is evil, like that type right, of thing. Yeah. So when Libby starts to come on to him, he is constantly being like, I think one of the funniest lines is where he goes, marriage is a sacred bond. Yeah. <laughs> like walks away. Yeah. And it's clear that he has infatuations with her. Because another thing that's really interesting about the film is as the film goes on, it seems very clear that Frank is also kind of becoming a little bit more self-aware in terms of, why Frank and his wife's relationship came to be, what they had in common, and realized that, like, what kept them, what made them kind of come together and be common is because they were two very broken people who really much related to one another and thought that being together was going to solve their issues or at least fix them. Well, and and it did did to some extent help each other. Yeah. But... But only momentarily. Yeah, Yeah. kind of took that to mean that they belonged together. Because to her, she she kind of starts dating Frank, and they end up getting married right after she gets out of rehab, which her sister tells her, like, hey, you know what they say in rehab, like, you should wait a year before you make big decisions like this. And she doesn't. And then ultimately she goes back into drugs, and Frank just doesn't get any better. He doesn't, like, really get any happier. He just kind of has a dead-end job and doesn't really care as long as he's with his wife with sarah and played by Liv tyler who's okay but at the same time she's not really given much to do yeah so it's like she really is probably the weakest link of the film only because she doesn't really have much of a character yeah other than in the backstory stuff drugged out damsel in distress which is a shame yeah and I, i think and that's why the ending i think is a lot more powerful to a degree yeah and with that we lead to a scene towards the end of the film where Libby decides that there's a loophole in terms of them being intimate where Frank doesn't want to doesn't want to fuck his sidekick but what if the crimson bolt wanted to fuck Bolty yeah. and it is a funny joke it's funny initially cuz it's like oh that's that's some weird like alter ego shit that yeah, goes yeah, into this, weird, like, role weird play. mental gymnastics but then it gets to a point where Libby forces his, herself onto him and it becomes a sexual assault and i will tell you now even re-watching the film it just it 
not an I don't think there's any enough foreshadowing or prep that could really get yeah. anyone to go like, it, oh, that's going this way. Like it yeah. just it's it not, hurts. It's not that the idea of it comes out of nowhere, but the extent to which it's portrayed yeah. and the long yeah. the length of which it goes on and the intensity of it is like, uh, oh, I didn't. This is I didn't know this was that kind of movie. No, it's and it also just makes Libby even worse yeah it makes it hard like, to to really i don't know justify her emotionally yeah. or whatever because um, they, especially they, because after that you know they they kind of continue with their final crusade and rain wilson has this sort of kind of emotional response to her yeah and it's like i don't know if i am here for that yeah. and it's and it's and i will say in in that scene it's hard as shit to watch yeah <laughs> But in that scene, Raid Wilson is doing an incredible job showing a man who absolutely would probably, if he wasn't married, maybe would be down for this. But the fact that he is doing this whole thing for his wife, this is making it so much worse and uncomfortable yeah. and is changing the relationship in a way that is so drastic and horrifying that, like, he just, he is, he basically just almost shuts down to a degree. Yeah. And... It's it insane. Like it's it's crazy to see this in this film and see it handled the way that it is. And I think it's handled seriously enough in the moment. But unfortunately, due to how the film is structured, it's kind of pushed to the side. Yeah, it just kind of which moves is, on. Which is one of the only things I would say is like, really? Yeah. Like I would understand to a degree if the situation became frank goes alone and can't forgive libby yeah right and then ultimately he goes there alone maybe gets like pinned down and then libby shows up regardless yeah and then, and then like she can kind of have yeah, yeah have a bit of a, a mini redemption that ultimately gets her killed yeah and then maybe that but the fact that it's like he is he's he instead and decides instead of trying to discuss this with libby and be like uh that was a monstrous thing to do, and I do not know how to process that. Yeah. He just goes, listen, Libby, I had another moment from God, told me to go after Sarah. Let's go right now. I know we're not prepped, but fuck it. Yeah. And it kind of just rushes through it, and it just feels like in a, in a film that is genuinely very interesting and brings up a lot of ideas and topics, I don't necessarily think that that really pushes any of that. Yeah. And it honestly just makes this film have a little bit of a, a dark edge yeah, to the it only that didn't need to be there. Yeah, the only thing it really does is drive the film darker to the point where you as the viewer are, are like genuinely uncomfortable with like trying to come to a conclusion on these characters. Yeah. And I guess if that's what you were going for, then mission accomplished. But it doesn't feel necessary to put that kind of trauma into the film if you're just going to move right on yeah. past it. Yeah, and if you, if I mean, I guess there's a degree where you can argue that like Frank is so, just like he has been basically physically abused his entire life, mentally abused and like bullied as a child that he genuinely might not understand the severity of that scene. Yeah, absolutely. But but at the same time, as an audience, we can understand the severity of that scene. Yeah. So like later on when like Libby dies. And I, it is handled well how Libby dies, and yeah. like I think Rain Wilson kills it in that scene. But it also has a vibe of like, okay, but like, it's almost she too did soon. Rape him. Yeah, it's almost too soon after that happened. Yeah, that we're suddenly seeing uh, Frank, you know, weeping over mm -hmm. her dead body, and it's like, ah, I mean, I, 
I get also, it. In in the real world, you could have that response to your assaulter. I get it, but like, I don't know what it's supposed to say to me as a viewer. And she also makes up excuses. She yeah, makes an right. excuse right after the scene where she says she was sleepwalking. Yeah, like just outright blatantly and lying, he knowing he she did something wrong. It. They don't have a discussion about yeah. it. He's just like, whatever, we got to do this. She has no apprehension after that when they go into the finale where they take on Kevin Bacon and his goons. And it feels weird to watch that scene to a degree where, like, she's just acting like everything is normal as if she didn't sexually assault him a few hours earlier. Yeah. And then at the very end of the film, there is, like, in that ending, which I will argue, I think, out of all of these films, I think it's the best part of them all. I love the ending of this yeah. film. And Rain Wilson's monologue and what it's, like, what he takes the whole journey as by the end of it. One of the only moments that just sticks out to me is like weird is he makes like he draws these moments in his life that he thinks are great moments, moments that he wants to remember for the rest of his life. And he draws a picture of Libby saying a, a line early on in the film where it's like, so this this is the in between the panels, that line. It's like and the first almost intimate scene. It's the first intimate like a building a relationship between both of them scene. And even though it's like, yeah, I get it's that scene, but, like, she still assaulted him. Yeah. And it's really just weird, and... It's also weird to me that, like, as soon as that element of their relationship gets introduced, uh, Libby suddenly starts to feel more childlike in the film, and that grosses me out. That was, that was yeah, that was, like... Because, like, early on in the film, when you first meet her, and she's just the comic book store clerk, like... I was thinking of them as roughly the same age. And by the time we get to the point where she wants to make out with him in their superhero costumes, it feels like she's 16 and he's 30. And I'm like, why are we framing it this way? It's like this weird thing where she doesn't fully understand hilariously the basic idea of like, I'm yes, you're attractive. I'm attractive to you, but I'm married. Yeah. I'm doing this for my wife. Well, I or don't just the basic idea of like you. this is this would make things difficult and weird and awkward. Yeah. Like, also, let's just not. And it's it's like she also constantly keeps bringing up like being the kid psychic. Yeah. Like she doesn't have to be a kid psychic. No. But she constantly brings it <laughs> up. Like, and I'm then bolt girl. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's like she brings up. I'm a kid. She brings up the kid psychic, and then the first time she shows up in her costume, she is doing extremely suggestive poses in yeah. the outfit, and it's like, what exactly? Yeah, you can be exudes, an adult woman yeah, in the psychic. It kind of exudes that like schoolgirl fetish, and it's like yeah, ah, like I it's don't almost like, like it. almost like Libby has that fetish for herself. Uh, yeah, and it's weird. It's also weird too because like I agree when you first meet Libby, she almost has like the vibe of like this is kind of like a Kevin Smith character. Yeah, oh, like yeah. she's just like she's got that angst. What's she's up, got man? That, she got that like oh f- fuck the fuck those people who yeah the no that. nonsense kind of yeah and it's like okay cool straightforward like, I was like yeah that's fine she she works fine for what they're doing now yeah. and when their relationship grows more she seems to be genuinely interested before Crimson Bolt is introduced in terms of like his identity yeah so it's like it's I think to her it's like Frank is so weird she is she's just like she's kind of enamored in, by intrigued his, intrigued his by oddness. him. And then when they find out about the superhero, she just like full on thirsts for him. Yeah, and she to the kind point, of becomes juvenile yeah, and naive to the point where she can't help but assault him, which is yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It's just again with this film, 
the most interesting out of all the guns films, but has this unfortunate uh, downside. This <laughs> one scene just feels so weird in comparison. Yeah. And it's even to the point where it's like, I've had, I've, I've talked to other people about this and they're like, is that the film where Elliot Page's character assaults Rain Wilson's character? It was like, yeah, yep. yeah, it is. It, I, mean, I have to, I have to like sigh because it's like it's that more wasn't Juno, than that. Was it? No, <laughs> no, it's not Juno. Thank God, it's not Juno. But it's like to a degree, I understand. Like the writing is really good through the majority of the film, and I feel like if there was more yeah. that was supposed to be addressed in the script and maybe got cut, I can see why they would want to kind of handle yeah. a taboo topic like that because. A, a man getting assaulted is so rarely seen, too, which also makes it even more like a wow. Yeah. Like it I mean, makes it, it is a powerful scene. Yeah. For better or for worse. It's yeah. an effective scene. It makes yeah. you really uncomfortable and really feel bad for um, yeah. Frank. But, yeah, it's just but, the, but the, since the, the, the follow-up is not yeah. there. But since there's so many, so few scenes like that where the males are the victims it just becomes even more apparent when you talk yeah, about the film where it's like it's weirder. one of the rare instances where this horrible thing happens to a guy yeah and it's unfortunate because again the yeah. cast is really good across the board gun is obviously getting better as in terms of what he wants to do thematically with characters in terms of developing yeah. characters the comedy is the right amount of unhinged <laughs> and i mean i i love the scene where he fights the drug dealer barehanded and just like fucks up entirely and gets like a, a shitty diaper attached to his yeah. back. And then like, or like where he's like, I need a weapon. And then the first thing he picks up is a wrench and that's his weapon. Yeah. He's like, I'm going with this. That'll do. Like God, I mean, building pipe bombs at the end. Oh, that was like, great. Oh my God. That, and he's putting thunder. He's putting lightning bolts on the side yeah, of them. And, like they're, yeah. Like batons or something. Uh, and it's like, again, Rain Wilson kills it. Elliot Page kills it. Kevin Bacon, surprisingly, for a little screen time that he has, is wonderfully just, like, slimy and interesting. And same with Michael Rooker. And, you know, Sean Gunn has funny moments here. And he has, like, a wild conversation with one of the, like, one of the side henchmen where it's like, would you rather do this or fuck your grandmother? (laughs) Like, he just, like, randomly shows up. That's 100% like a, just a James Gunn tangent just like excuse me and like you don't you you, any context it's just would you rather do this or fuck your grandmother and it's like there's no answer they don't really answer anything Um, (laughs) and it goes right back into the film and yeah it's just but it is it it does feel kind of like the perfect i mean not perfect as a film but you know a perfect culmination of kind of all of the things that we've seen from gun up to that point in terms of using weird ideas to challenge conventions you know including hyper violence and kind of the dementedness of the human psyche to Mm -hmm. as as a device um it is interesting thinking about the fact that this is probably the film that got marvel interested in him for a relatively straightforward superhero blockbuster yeah i I, it's like oh man this is Darker than I could have imagined and more perverse and not flattering to the idea of superheroes. <laughs> yeah, because so. I do think at the end of the day, uh, with that scene in tow, Super is definitely the film where a lot of people, including myself, watched it and went, this is not perfect. I don't know if it's necessarily overall great, 
But man, James Gunn has such potential yeah. that I cannot wait to see where he goes from here. Yeah, it was and then, something. Yeah, and then from that point forward, from 2010 to 2014, in 2014, Guardians of the Galaxy, the rest is rest is being made right now. Yeah, yeah. The rest is history that's being made at the moment well, where it's like Gunn is just getting better and it's clear that doing Super and Slither and even fucking Tromeo and Juliet led to him to make some really great choices in his career and in yeah. his writing later well, I on. Think, yeah, I think those movies and his growth as a person in his personal life across those films kind of informs how he becomes, you know, the the filmmaker that we know today That's that's makes stories more from a place of love than a place of, you know, rebellion or controversy yeah. or scandal. You oh, know? yeah. Um, or even just homage to other things he's he's making movies that are incredibly earnest now and incredibly heartfelt while yeah. using his you know mm-hmm. penchant for the edgy yeah as he's as he's as he's grown up as he's gotten older and i think matured more as a writer he has taken a lot of what is the most important and honestly all three films to him which is the characters and found a way to be able to keep his own edge with those characters without yep. having to go into the deep ends of the wild shit in Tromeo and Juliet or the, that scene in Super. Yeah. Like, he's able to keep his style and able or to keep his... Or the Mr. Pibb scene in Slither. Or the Mr. Pibb yep. scene in Slither, which makes the fact that Nathan Fillion drinks <laughs> Mr. Pibb in the Suicide yeah. Squad even better. I was like, oh, man. Now, now I know that's a Slither callback. Yeah, and I love that, like, because it's like it, it stuck out to me in that trailer. With <laughs> was like, I never see Mister Pibb in films. Yeah, why is and, there Mister Pibb in this? <laughs> and that's great. And yeah, that is the rise of Gun. That is a man that has a very interesting early half of his career. Yeah, and I say that too, but at the same time, it's technically his career is still early. Yeah, he's he's still he's not. I mean, he's what fifty. He's 55. 55. And, and he, he looks really like, still, in terms of his mainstream appeal, very mm-hmm. still pretty young on the scene. He's got a he's got beautiful white hair all around. <laughs> he's got a, you know, yeah, mad, he, massive prospects. I guess prospects. he decided to embrace the white sometime in the last I, I think, year or two. Yeah, I think like months ago. Yeah. And he his next project post The Suicide Squad is a show tied to John Cena's Peacemaker on HBO Max. I'm pumped for that. Which I'm actually, yeah, I'm generally pumped for that too, especially after Cena yeah. in The Suicide Squad. And then he's back to more Guardian yeah. stuff, which more will be Guardian interesting stuff. to see after so long, just mm-hmm. because, you know, the last one was 2017 and then we haven't gotten any Marvel guns since then. Yeah, it'll be six years. That's yeah. insane. But at the same time, we've gotten, again, some of the, Better parts in Infinity War 2, especially early on, are like the smidges of Guardians, which yeah, Gunn well, was able yeah. to dip and his was, toes into for a little bit with the Russos. Yeah, and, he was a very creatively involved executive producer yeah. on those. And it's it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes from here, because he's also talked about like, hey, if Disney wants me to do a show for Disney+, Plus, I'd be interested in doing the Ravagers from the Guardian series yeah. into a show, which is like, fuck okay. it. Give it right. a try. I'd give it a try. Sure. If they're willing to put money into What If... Like I'm yeah. curious to see what a Ravager show could be, or like what what yeah. he would push. And but yeah, I don't I don't think anything. I think the only thing I could think of that I want to bring up is a fun thing that I think is true, where I think the only film that Sean hasn't shown up in his filmography is Slither, but I think that's only because he was in the Gilmore Girls at the time, <laughs> because he is I think like a prominent secondary comedic relief in the Gilmore Girls. Yeah. 
Because I remember in the Netflix return of the Gilmore Girls, I was like, is that fucking Sean Gunn? <laughs> Why the fuck is he at this show? And I was like, oh, I guess he's always been a Gilmore Girls alum? What? Yeah. <laughs> what a wild... God, what a wild just like trip going through the rabbit hole of like who's connected to James Gunn and what else yeah. they've done. And man, I'm I'm so excited to see where it goes from here. And I'm I'm honestly genuinely excited to rewatch the Suicide Squad after watching these three films because it's like I honestly think I don't see how he could fail, and I hope he doesn't, knock on wood, but like I can't wait to see how he tries to keep this momentum going. Yeah. Because cause it's, it hasn't even been a decade since Guardians came out. And this right. is some insane momentum for a director. Yeah, Just yeah, to yeah. go from film after film after film, where, like, the weakest film I think that has his name on it is, like, the Bilko experiment. Yeah. And that's and only that was, because he he's, just wrote it, right? He just wrote it. And it... And, which makes sense, I guess. And to I be just, honest, a gun script in anyone else's hands is a potentially bad movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, 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 like it has not, to be. Not that he's a bad writer, but no. he knows how to direct his writing, and yeah. not everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Which, I think that's clear in stuff like Belko Experiment. Oh, absolutely. It's, and Scooby-Doo. And Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it, it's very it's like, clear that like keep him on both yeah. points. Because apparently, I think Batista has said, like with, with Army of the Dead, he really kind of appreciated as much as he loves gun. He appreciated Snyder's like flee fr- like free flowing approach to like kind of improv and kind of like building with the character on set. While gun is strict gun yeah. is like, what's in the script is what I want it to be. Yeah. Here's kind of where I want it to be. And it's like, it makes sense watching those films. Cause all those films are tight. Yeah. And it's very clear his vision. Mm-hmm. And that's the rise of gun. And as much as I don't ever want to watch Tromeo and Juliet again, <laughs> And would kind of like to forget that yeah. scene in Super for the time being. I'm glad we did it. And I'm now super excited to talk about what we're doing next. So next week, because, you it's know. It's becoming a very special time of year. I know. we Since we record this live, next week on the 22nd. 20, well, 22nd would be the the, the special date. Is the it anniversary. Spe- is it the anniversary? Yeah. But I think the 21st is next Saturday. Is it the twenty? Oh, it is the twenty first. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Next weekend's there the we twenty. Next episode will be the twenty first, <laughs> but the topic of next yes. episode will be based on the twenty second. So yeah, the next episode is not going to be a trilogy of its own. It is actually going to be, insanely enough, our first anniversary special. Yeah, we are going to be talking about leading up to our first anniversary special, just kind of recapping, basically, I, I guess you could say the first season first two seasons however you want to you know chop these yeah. episodes up and talk about what our favorites are where we'd like to go with the show what we already have planned for the show in the future in terms of trilogies because we we have so many ideas we kind of know where we want to go for the rest of the year but we thought it would be fun to have kind of a recap and kind of ask you what you would like us to talk about or also what films you would want us to discuss so at the time this comes out, there should be posts that we will create where we ask you if you have any questions for us, you know, write an inf- like write a comment here, let us know, and we'll talk about it on the show. Yeah, we'll definitely do special. some some socials this coming week, just kind of trying to get yeah people's input and uh, just see how we can turn that into into some fun on the show. Yeah, and just answer some questions that if anyone has some burning questions about how we do the show or yeah. what. What kind of constitutes as an odd trilogy to us, if we haven't made that already clear enough, or if you just want to hear 
more about why Andy wants to do planes. More yeah. than happy, just like you know, send those comments our well, way. The the last the last ninety minutes of next week's special will be my planes trilogy, which will be fun. It'll be a four and a half hour special. It will be the last ninety minutes will mm-hmm. be planes, and I will thankfully be taking a nap in that process. So <laughs> we'll leave Logan snoring in the background. <laughs> I'll just put a, the um, snoring sound effect. In the but back. no, yeah, we we might also I think do some a little bit of healthy reminiscing, talking about some of the favorite things we've done on the show things that you know lessons we've learned maybe things we'd like to do next do some little uh some light teasing and spitballing for the future and just talk about what we've what we've learned so far i guess in the process of this because it is insane to me that it's almost been a year and 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 i do not regret at all doing this in fact i am more excited to see where we go from here and what we'd like to do in the future but I was astonished um, the other day because I was doing kind of a little um, uh, state of the union for myself and my my kind of movie watching for the year. And I realized I've watched over 40 movies for the podcast alone this (laughs) year, like 40 movies specifically for the podcast. And I was like, man, have we really had that many episodes? I mean, not not that we, you know, do one movie per episode, but no, but like just that we've had that many episodes to necessitate 40 movies. And sure enough. Hell yeah. And we have so many more to come. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So many more ideas that we're super excited about. But yeah. But tune in on the 21st when we have Odd Trilogy's very first anniversary special. But until then, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And thank you so much for listening. Bye.